Welcome to the Spaceship Earth Mission Log. Today I have a special episode where we're going to do things a little bit differently. I have Veronica Anderson, who is a member of the Design Science Synergy Mission. And what we're going to do is something that we've been doing in the space camp uh, this last round that I really enjoy, which is, uh, I think, very important, which is to open with a little bit of a centering before we begin. So I would invite you, Veronica, to lead us in a short opening meditation. Thank you so much, Stephen. And thank you, dear listeners. We're just going to drop more deeply into a sense of presence and connection. So if you'd like to meet me at the bottom of your next exhalation, we'll breathe in together. Breathing in. Just let it go. Let's do another one like that. Breathing in together. And breathing out. On this third breath together, we'll breathe in. Maybe the deepest breath you've taken all day. And let it out with a sigh or a sound. <sighs> the breath is a bridge back to the body. So I invite you to connect with your body. You can let your eyes close for a moment if that feels helpful or gently rest your gaze. Feeling points of contact with anything that you might be sitting on, lying on, or walking upon. Feeling the embrace of gravity as this gentle pull towards the earth. Noticing if you can hear or see any signs that nature is with us. Hmm. Allowing yourself to be resourced by this abundance of nature in and all around. Thank you for your practice of presence. Thank you, Stephen, for opening this space with me. I can feel the hearts of all our listeners woven together around the earth right now, across time and space, joined in this mission to bring more love and peace and beauty to the world. Thank you. All right. <laughs> wow. Um, I think that's so powerful to open with just an acknowledgement of everyone who's listening and every everything that's holding us, the planet that's holding us, and the air that we're breathing, and to connect more deeply. Um, and I feel like that very well connects to the idea of the synarchy. 
Um, are you able to share a little bit about your notion of synarchy, like your understanding of how we can group differently <laughs> and lead differently? Well, synarchy is a form of rule where we're all self-governing ourselves. So it's a decentralized notion of a group having a sense of direction and order that is sourced from within each individual simultaneously. Hmm. So in the world, we're really used to seeing someone or a, a group that represents a one power uh, existing over the rest of the group. There's a hierarchy. And uh, with synarchy, we're, we're saying there's a synthesis of energies that is, we are co-ruling hmm. and uh, hmm. there's, there's a, an element of sovereignty of each individual having a sense of what is good and right and true and and honoring that in themselves and then externalizing it through you know successful communication and uh, collaboration to co-create directions forward that's my brief introduction beautifully said and i think that's something that people want to aspire to is this non centralized non hierarchical uh, egalitarian form of leadership but the trickiest part about that is that to lead well first you have to lead from within and so that's where the healing work comes in that's where the work in uh, nonviolent communication comes in. That's where it helps to be trauma-informed when you're dealing with a group of people, especially when we're all leading from examples that we had that maybe were less than ideal or uh, frameworks that we're trying to make something new. We know what we don't want, but but the the examples we have for what we are doing are flawed. And so um, I want to get into your mission as well. Uh, but I do want to talk about um, that internal process um, and then also go into your background. You're an architect by training, and you have utilized that in a number of wonderful ways. Uh, could you give me just a, a brief, you know, five-minute background into your journey and how that led you ultimately to the Design Science Studio and also the work you're doing now with your coaching. Um, tell me just like a kind of a brief bit of, you know, how you ended up where you are now. I'd love to. Thanks for that invitation. I think storytelling is a really helpful way to bring people deeply into an experience of creating a new future. Where have we been? Where are we going? And um, so I, I grew up in Connecticut on the lands of the Nahantic Indian tribe um, on the shore of the Atlantic Ocean. And I was always deeply uh, in, in, immersed in nature, felt really connected to it um, in my own way. And uh, it wasn't until I was in architecture school when I realized that people didn't all have that connection to nature. I sort of took it for granted. <laughs> And I remember learning about sustainability. Uh, this was before 2015 when the United Nations 2030 agenda and the sustainable development goals were written. There was still an active debate about is climate change a real thing? Hmm. And so I was studying sustainability in architecture school and they're teaching us that this was an alternative 
to development practices. And I thought, that's crazy. Why would we do anything that's not sustainable? How could we perpetuate something that we know to be unsustainable and detrimental? Um, And at the time, um, Occupy Wall Street was a really big deal. Uh, The Arab Spring, there was this whole zeitgeist around, wait a minute, the status quo is not serving us. And so I came up as an architect in this idea of, we got to do something. Things need to change. And it really felt like it was on my shoulders as a 18 year old walking into the profession. And so I um, ended up going on to get my master's degree in geodesign, which is the use of geospatial technology for sustainable development, specifically to support urban development. Urbanization is uh, the context in which more than 50% of the world lives right now. And our world is only becoming more urbanized. And we actually don't know how to build cities in a way that are truly sustainable. Um, Yeah. Right. (laughs) So I was really motivated to, to take geospatial data into the architecture profession. I became fascinated by the 2030 agenda, 2030 sustainable development goals and how we could use data-driven design to actually create places and spaces that were honoring of the nature that they were replacing. Because if we're going to design something, I wanted it to be better than what was there in the first place, which is a little hard to do given that nature has 3.8 billion years of experience (laughs) designing. And we come in with our, you know, maybe 150 years of industrialization and think we can do it better. But Stephen Bow blew my mind, um, a mutual friend (laughs) of ours. uh, And uh, he said something about how, um, what if we could, and this may not have been an original thought, maybe it was, um, what if humans could become like with, with the coral are a living organism. They 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 grow, and then they leave their shells and and their frameworks and their scaffolding. What if the built environment was like that for nature? We were building something that was mm-hmm. harmonizing and creating a framework for life with our cities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I've, I've always thought of architecture as a healing art, a way that we can start to interface with the with the natural environment and and co-create with nature so i I do love that expression and and i find stephen's wisdom to be quite unique um and and medicinal in this world um so um i ended up creating something called home dash which is a dashboard for visualizing the heartbeat of mother earth and this was a system based on geospatial data gis and that's geographic information systems. And it had the potential to visualize the way that humans and nature were co-creating or not. And, um, you know, that was a really um, almost spiritual offering for me to, to put out into the world because along the way in my architecture journey, I realized that if we were going to create something that was actually new and different, a a new way of living with nature, we needed a consciousness shift. And this is something that I didn't invent this idea. We know that if we're going to become a sustainable society, we need a shift in consciousness. Uh, But I 
and I have a background of 15 years in Zen Buddhism. So I've been studying the power of mindfulness, of, of the power of presence um, for almost half my life. And the reality is if, if we're aware and awake, if we're present to what is happening around us, we're automatically motivated into compassionate action. It's just how we are. It's the, the beauty of being human. So Home Dash was this, this project that I brought into the design science studio as an incubator and the, which was intended to visualize where are the problems? Where is the armed conflict? Where is the poverty? Where, where is there a water shortage? And then where are there opportunities? Like where are the biodiversity hotspots? How can we start to create solutions which are targeting our weak spots at a global scale? And this is related to uh, Buckminster Fuller's um, geoscope. Uh, I actually didn't know about the world game or geoscope until I had already brought <laughs> home dash into the design science studio. So uh, the power of that incubator, it was to really educate me on my, my ancestors. Um, but I think that's a, a good introduction to my journey as an architect. Uh, there's a lot more I can say about the inner dimension as well, but it's easier often to start with the external architecture. Yeah. Well, that's the thing that most people understand is the externalities, and that's where most people are focused. And so it could be a little murky for some to, to venture into the inner worlds. Uh, and also extremely rewarding. Uh, you mentioned Zen and meditation. I think that's a really good place to start. Often in Zen, I, I love that the teaching isn't... <laughs> overtly teaching like you are going to learn this and here's what it is and now you've learned it it's like this puzzle this riddle that has to be lived and suddenly you realize wait like this doesn't make any sense and it's like yeah that's the point <laughs> but you know in terms of um in terms of building a better world you're right we need to heal not just the planet, but ourselves and our interrelationships and interbeing with one another, because um, there has been so much trauma in the world, in, in history, um, that is even, you know, especially in our modern times where we're, you know, as trauma re-perpetuates itself. So a person who is acting out of their trauma will create unintentional or intentional trauma with those they interact with. I mean, just think of a boss that you've had, like, oh, that boss that everybody just walks on eggshells or just comes home tired because of that one guy that's just hard to work with. Well, that person is most likely acting out of their trauma and unaware of it or simply doesn't care. And those are the things that make it difficult to solve problems together as a group to uh, collaborate, to really come and bring our whole selves into our work, which I think is essential for humanity now to anchor into our heart space and really learn to reconnect with ourselves so that we can connect with each other and with nature. And that takes a slowing down. That takes a listening. That takes a tuning in. And that takes an attunement within yourself that uh, it, the inner work really prepares you for. And so um, you also do ensoulment coaching. You work with people uh, on sort of a, a spirit level of being 
to help them to um like clarify i would say what it is within them that's trying to emerge right can you tell me a little bit more about um that side of your work and i know that that's going to go more into a lot of your other work with nature and the planet so please share <laughs> let's explore that thank you so much for the invitation it's it's often uncomfortable for people to use the word trauma and you've said it more than i have in this conversation so i feel right at home <laughs> um yeah I, I think the the word ensoulment is worth, you know, sort of chewing on for a minute. And uh, there's this awareness we have that artists and um, culture creators, they move through their work driven by soul. And you mean, think of a jazz musician. And actually, there's the the movie from Disney called Soul, which I think actually represents this, this concept ensoulment so well. Um, there's, there's this way that we can move through the world. And, and I was this way for the majority of my life where we're, we're just head down focused on getting the work done, right? We just want to achieve our goals, mm-hmm. meet the requirements and, and we're not feeling, we're not in our bodies. And I believe that it's from this state that we have created our entire dysfunctional degenerative society. And we uh, have just been in this, <laughs> yeah. this achievement mindset where we're, um, we're not really here. We're just not fully here. And there was a time in my life where something just snapped and, and I came out of denial about all of my own trauma and these memories of my abusive childhood came up and they just kept coming and they wouldn't stop. And I was, uh, I I finally had an explanation for all of the depression and anxiety, the, the difficulties that I'd had my whole life, which other people hadn't visibly to me been struggling with. And I believe, you know, this is a, this, this other state that I described of, of head down, just get it done, numb, not in the body. This is a trauma response. So, I mean, if we, if we think about the, the state of our, our colonial patriarchal society, uh, this to me is a trauma response that, you know, if we go back to Europe 500 years ago, it was just constant war and it had been for generations. Mm-hmm. And then from that grew this, this flea response where, you know, we have fight, flight, freeze, and fawn. And so this, this flight out of Europe and into the Americas, it was a trauma response. And, and, and we can't create anything beautiful and good and true if we're not fully present while we're doing it. And so that's how we ended up with the system. And, and so I, I saw that as I was seeing my own trauma responses, as I was learning to make peace with my own body, I thought, well, probably this is what humanity needs to do to make peace with its planetary body. That if I've been in addiction, if I have been trying to run from my own pain and my own trauma because I can't cope with it, probably humanity is doing the same thing running from its planetary body because it can't cope. And there's the addiction of consumerism. There's the addiction of fossil fuels. There's the addiction of hyper-productivity where people will literally work themselves to death. We've yes. created a system that rewards that. And so ensoulment for me is this uh, offering of bringing 
each individual back into contact with their soul and learning to have a conversation with the soul so that we can be guided by this source of deep wisdom and, and incredible power, uh, which is truly regenerative that, you know, when we're connected with this spiritual dimension of ourselves, we have limitless resources. I mean, we're capable of just extraordinary things. Um, yeah. and you mentioned the whole self and, and that for me is what ensoulment is really about and you know, reconnecting, being able to slow down because the, the soul grounds us into the body and the body is often going to tell us, you know, just you know, slow down, go at the pace of nature, this geological scale where we're really taking our time. Uh, that's the kind of world I'd like to to cultivate, you know, sort of one person at a time for the moment. <laughs> so much. Yes, because, and yeah, like the interesting thing to me was this idea when Amanda Joy Ravenhill was reading about how Buckminster Fuller was about to drown himself in the Great Lakes. And he was really at this place where his life wasn't successful. And he had this uh, awareness where suddenly he realized, oh, like I belong to the universe. And that was his transformation that was able to open him up to be this vessel for all these ideas. And then he said, you know, what can I do in one lifetime? And then he just opened up the potential that was available. And I feel like so many of us have been clamped, you know, in this trauma response where it, there's a there's a like limit or a glass ceiling on what we're individually capable of and therefore collectively capable of because of that smallness that is, you know, from that space of wounding. And so to open to do the inner healing work is to acknowledge that there is more that you're here to do and that as you like free yourself, it's not to like become this, you know, person who's just self-interested. It's, you know, it's actually a way to uh, open up your impact in your community and in your own circles to have those ripple effects. In other words, I always like to give the example of when I'm in my joy, I smile at the person checking me out at the grocery store, like, you know, doing the cash register. And that smile has the potential to ripple out into their day, which then has the potential to ripple out into every other person they meet throughout the rest of the day. They have a good shift. They smile. They ask people questions. Suddenly there's just that little bit is, is spreading good into the world. And that started with someone who was able to align themselves and orient themselves with joy. And we all have the potential to do that in the littlest ways and in the biggest ways. Sometimes it's the little way in the biggest place at the right time that becomes this, you know, huge movement. Or, you know, sometimes it's just, like you said, showing up and slowing down enough to the rhythms of nature so that we're not looking past our own, our own bodies, our own humanity, or the squirrel crossing the street when we're driving, um, that we don't run over because we're conscious and we're paying attention, right? Like those things, they echo out. And so, uh, you know, it, it, for, the, for the practically minded out there, this inner consciousness work is extremely practical, to the idea of regenerating or healing the world. 
and to create a world that um, like automatically without our, you know, direct willful like design will start to benefit. And, um, and it's, it's about those inter, it's about the interweb, it's the interbeing, it's the interconnections of how, you know, those ripple out and how those start to, you know, as the health returns to the ecosystem of our culture um, to begin to have this, this foundation of that healthy ecosystem, that healthy social systems that are going to undergird and create a, a new group of people who are thinking about the kinds of enterprises and building that we want to do, the kinds of cities that we want to build. How? What is the qualitative aspect of how that feels and how it interconnects with nature and how we observe our impact on each other and how we embody and enjoy and, and dance and sing and, and play and become ex, uh, inhabitors of a beautiful life. And I, I think it's so important. I couldn't agree more. I feel like you just said all of it perfectly. <laughs> I'll just amplify, uh, use the word smallness and and I think that's really the key here because there's a a part of us uh, that is very small, and it's it's we call it our inner child uh, in psychology. And this this piece of us gets created from all the vulnerable moments and all of the times when we just couldn't cope. And the the inner child is this representation of of also our joy and our creativity and our spiritual abundance. And so it's amazing how the most vulnerable part of us is actually our connection to all that is. And and creativity is this beautiful thing that that we all have. Everybody is creative. Maybe some of our listeners feel like, well, I'm not creative. I'm not an artist. Well, uh, everybody is creative. And Spoiler we all alert, have you're creative too. <laughs> <Surprise>. <laughs> uh, we all have this capacity to, to draw upon this just mystical well of, of creative energy that we can create things. I'm creating things as I speak. And, and these sentences, where are they coming from? And uh, that mysticism, I think, is what sets Buckminster Fuller's work apart. Because uh, that quote that you mentioned, that was one of the defining quotes of my life, actually. When I no found way. that quote, you don't belong to yourself, you belong to the universe. It changed everything for me. I was <laughs> like, yes, he's right. <laughs> I have no excuse. Because the inner child wants to stay small. It's safe to hide. It's it's safer to not be heard, to use our voice and to put our visions out into the world. That's dangerous. It could be. I mean, somebody might attack us. I mean, John Lennon, where did he go? You know, these these visionaries right. um, a, attract some kind of attention. And we have to remind ourselves that the system profits on our smallness. Because we take up less space, we you know take up less resources, and we're easier to control and manipulate. And yeah. because we have, we live within a hegemony. That's the word for power structures that comes from Greece seven thousand years ago, when they invented the nation state. Before that, people were just in tribes and they were doing their self governing kind of situations. But then we we became indoctrinated to this idea that somebody else is an authority. Somebody else knows how I should live and I should follow their 
their rules and their suggestions because they know better. But with ensoulment, what we do is we learn to return to our self-authority and we come back into our own power, which nobody can take from us. We, we just willingly give it away when, when we submit to, um, you know, following the, the path that's been set out for us or, um, and that could be an emotional path. You know, maybe somebody taught us that, that we're grumpy and, and we're frowny and, and we don't smile at strangers and we don't have nice things to say, but we could choose a different path. And I believe that the universe has that intention for us in our lives. And, and, and if we're going to reconnect, we need to stop being small because when we, when we are small, we isolate and we, I am doing it with my shoulders, right? I'm like hunching in and curling up and, and reconnection is, is open. It's, it's coming out. And we're, we're only able to do that when we feel safe. And yeah. so that's the work of the inner child healing is to create the sense of safety within ourselves. And, and if we, and I'll tie this back for our practical folks to the the reality of you know systems change and the infrastructure and you know the architect in me really values this is that if we are if we're staying stuck and small and we're we're afraid and we're isolating then we're going to create more focus on war on on scavenging and hoarding resources and on not separateness. Uh, our separateness, exactly. That wound of separation instead of connection, instead of what we realized during the pandemic, which is we need to show up for our neighbors. I need to yeah. know like how my neighbor's doing so I can give them my extra resources and create mutual aid networks. So yeah. there is that that opportunity for us now. Yeah, so much. And it's interesting how we in staying small, like there's been this idea that's been put out like of, you know, humility in smallness. And you really see how that falls apart when you realize that in order to be who you were meant to be in the world, you must be confident. You must embrace your gifts. You must be able to share and be able to initiate and I love that example of, you know, sharing with your neighbor. I also think that something else you said about how um, we have to navigate in this world where we're trying to find out how to move against the grain. I feel like that is the realm of the artist. I, I, I know so many artists who it's like, you know, we can't go with the grain. It's like physically impossible. It pains us to go with the grain. And so I think that's why the arts are so important because the artists are the ones saying, hey, the system is broken. Hey, this doesn't work. You know, there's got to be something new. And they're calling for forth a new thing. So I want to ask you about visioning. And I want to tie that into the design science studio and ask you about that as well. So first of all, you know, we understand that it's important where we set our sights, what stories we tell ourselves, because those are the things we tend to believe. Uh, but, you know, can you tell me a little bit about um, your life as an artist 
and maybe your experience of, I mean, obviously this also goes into the conversation of having to create a safe space because ultimately to create the art and put it out, you have to be vulnerable with that inner child and play, create, blah, blah, blah. And then, oh gosh, the world needs to see it. And it's like, wait, I'm not sure I'm ready for someone to critique me. Um, but you know, that is why I think the artists have an advantage here because we all have been going through that soul process of learning how to let our creations out, even though there's this world out there that doesn't run in the way that we prefer. And uh, we almost we almost can't not do that. And so, um, yeah, tell me a little bit more about the artistic process in vision and then let me know what it's like being in the design science studio. Mm, yes. Well, I think the the process of creativity and visioning for me is is very well described by that Buckminster Fuller quote that you belong to the universe. And the process of ensoulment has been, it's a process, right? It doesn't end. And I'm, I'm still on my ensoulment journey. Um, but what happens is little by little, you learn to let go of control and, and to step out of the way. So mm. you become able to be fully present in the here and now, and you empty yourself through that presence and then in the space that's created through the emptying comes something. It, it seems to come from nowhere, but in, in installment, we know that it's coming from the soul. It's this, you know, this channeling that happens. And then, and then one is moved to, to write, to paint, to dance, to design, and, or even just to be, because I believe being is a beautiful <laughs> art as well. Yes. <laughs> and, and so it's, it's about, uh, you know, in my architecture practice, uh, when I, I built a, a sacred space here where I am in Costa Rica, um, and, and I offer thanks to the, the Wetar people who are the steward, ancestral stewards of these lands. Mm. Um, I, whenever I'm creating a, a project, and this one in particular, I, I go there to listen to the land. I, I'm listening first and foremost, because I know that it's not me who's creating the structure. It's the land creating something through me. Mm. And so I receive the visions. I don't make them. I'm not the creator of the vision. It, it is using me to express in the world is how I choose to see it. I, I feel that helps a lot with the ego side of things, <laughs> which is the part of us that's quite hurt by the criticism and you know so it's a little self-serving but it's also a more joyous creative process in that way yeah and so the vision comes alive through me i give my hands and my blood and my my bones to it and uh use my my human brain which has left and right and 3d functioning and i can put pieces together and and now there's a a structure that exists on the land uh, you know, stained glass windows and a beautiful bamboo reciprocal roof and uh, a little round hobbit door. And <laughs> it's a space where people can go and and receive nature. They go to be in that space and it changes them. And so I believe that um, Picasso said that art washes away the dust of ordinary life. Mm. And And you named this too. It's this if it moves you, it's art. <laughs> if it makes you want to do something, even if that's like destroy something or, you know, yeah. maybe it's to create something, whatever it is, there is this, this movement and, and transformation that happens. And 
you know, I'm partial to space as a medium because I'm an architect and, and I find light and space to be uh, so transformational. Um, and in, in my practice, I mean, it's been very solitary because the, uh, firstly, I'm a woman, if you haven't noticed, <laughs> and uh, only about 10 or 15% of architects are women. It is a mm. largely masculine profession, yeah. Um, which is worth noting because if we think about the way that our physical world and our built environment has literally been designed by men, um, yeah. we start to wonder, you know, is that influencing how we think and feel and act? Like, are we behaving yeah. uh, in, in a way that is somewhat masculine because our buildings and cities and spaces have been designed by men. Oh yeah. 100%. 100%. (laughs) And not to say there's not a space for the masculine, but there is a need for balance and, and to acknowledge that our built environments and our art and what we consume and listen to and watch affects what, side of the brain is getting priority, you know, and whether the creators are getting valid, validated and valued in our society or whether it's all about the, the numbers and the math. I mean, out of balance, it's, it doesn't work. It's not an ecosystem. Yeah. 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 Well, I share that only to, to elucidate the aloneness that I felt as a, as a visionary yeah. architect. And you know, I was moving through the world and speaking about sacred architecture and, and sacred geometry and crystalline frequencies and um, bringing my mystical, my training as a mystic into my training as an architect and my practice and hmm. you know, weaving the two together. And it wasn't until I found the design science studio that I realized I wasn't crazy. That this was something <laughs> that people really wanted to talk about and hear about. Yeah. And so the, the, the idea that uh, we can create something that moves people requires people. And what's always, I think, challenged me the most about being an artist is the showing part. And you named that, which I love. Is, <laughs> you know, you can be creative, but until you're showing your work, you're not really an artist. Yeah. And and that can be really hard. I, I remember when I finished the building here, uh, the, the temple, it's named Gayatika. When, when Gayatika was finished, it was beautiful. The uh, tree that we centered the whole uh, space around and facing, um, I had joked, wouldn't it be wonderful if this tree blossomed? It had it has pink blooms. Wouldn't it be wonderful if it, if it blossomed when we finished the building and then, you know, six months or whatever later, <laughs> three days before the inauguration ceremony, this tree burst into glo- glorious wow. fluorescence. Right on cue. I was listening. It was it was a sign from nature saying, thank you. Congratulations. You did it. Um, and we had built that space with the permission of the indigenous ancestors of that land. We had gone to the, the indigenous reserve nearby and asked for their permission. And they had come to help instruct us in, you know, the ceremony, ceremonial creation of the space as well. Mm -hmm. And in the design science studio, I found people that understood the importance of this indigenous connection, this, this internal connection as well, because I wasn't just making a space that was organic architecture with feminine forms because I like it. It was a psychological experience. It's Mm. something that I call a sensorium where we're reawakening the senses and 
and bringing people back into their bodies because the space is curved and it has colorful stained glass windows and it's largely open air. Mm -hmm. And so all of these things, the healing component of the regenerative development that I had been studying was inherently woven into the work in the design science studio. So the, the holism of the practices of the people around me was really nourishing and it helped me to to really take my work to the next level in a way that I don't believe anything else could have. Yeah, and that space and the holistic viewpoint of everybody in the group help you to actually embody that for yourself, which is what you were looking for. I find that often when I work with other healers, uh, it will help me to ground my own healing ability within myself. And so that somebody else is holding a space for the possible, what is possible and realistic. Like, this is a thing that we do. We don't just believe it, but we're here in this, you know, whole systems view of life and creating art in that way. Suddenly it frees you up to be that as well. And I feel like there's a big part to the regenerative work that we're doing is just way showing. It's like, Hey, look, here's a thing that can be done that we're doing. And so it exists. And art can do that as well. Art can also foretell that as well. Here's a thing that society we could imagine. And we'd like to build this. And here's a, here's a story of what this is like and you know how it feels. And isn't this great? And I think that's so important because people people resonate with the things that are right for them. So as they come in contact with a story, like let's say Harry Potter or something like that, where they're like, like there's something about this story that just lights me up, you know, that, that that's important because there need, there's something in that for that person that awakens something within them that is, you know, magical or uh, imaginative or free spirited. Um, It gives us permission uh, in a sense, mm-hmm. to be who we are. And I, I think so much of our modern society doesn't give us permission to be who we are. There's so much that we have to like put on a front of like, you know, here's who I have to be to be professional. Here's who I have to be to be a good dad. Here's who I have to be to be a good partner, et cetera, et cetera. I say, here's where I need to shop. Here's what I need to wear to be socially acceptable. You know, like those kind of things that, that really, um, you know, it's not that those externalities are bad, but it's when we're being false selves. We're not being true self. So being in a group of people like you found at Design Science Studio, where you're with other people who are emanating their true selves, it gives you the template to open and the safety and the the like know-how uh, to just like, you know, go, oh, yeah, I, I can. I'm a bird. I can fly, too. Here are my wings. You know, it's like if you, you know, it's like, what's that quote? If you tell a if you tell a fish that it should climb a tree, it's going to spend its whole life thinking it's dumb. Right. <laughs> like if you're a bird and you can fly, but, you know, all the other birds are they don't fly. You might it might not occur to you that these wings are for something good, you know, that's powerful. <laughs> So, yeah, um, and I honor your story about the what a beautiful example of your architecture. And I feel like uh, the, the tree is so central to how we need to think about our built systems in the future is this partnership and this collaboration with nature uh, that also is a partnership and collaboration with the the felt space of the environment. What is this? 
what does this create? Does this, you know, like you said, the, the space is a healing space. So the spaces, the spaces in of, of themselves help the people who come in them to like feel safe, to open, to connect with the divine, if you were, or the, you know, connect with nature. And these sacred spaces are so important and have been for such a long time. And so much of our modern built environment is not that it's it's utilitarian it's uh you know price per square foot it's you know it's ignoring the nature outside Carl Welty and I talked about that at length in his episode and um you know it's i think to know that that's what things ought to be uh gives you and others the ability to say well that i want that and you know for you to make that and somebody can go experience that i think you know, helps to, and, and even if somebody were painting that, like gives other people the ability to like, well, why can't our lived environment look like this painting? Like it's, it, you know, it should, you know, like this is, this is feels better. And there's, you know, we know what feels good. We know what, and, and I want to bring it back to this idea of embodiment because, you know, in this conversation, we, we know what feels good. And, you know, if we had a check-in moment about, you know, when, when that fear comes up around, uh, criticism and art, like there's a feeling that's I can feel in my body as you're talking about that, you know, hey, my shoulders are hunching like this is this is this is scary. You know, there's a feeling within me of like maybe even just a pause and to acknowledge that collective feeling for a moment and say like, OK, what do I do if suddenly in my body I'm feeling this this contraction around oh my gosh, like being seen. Mm -hmm. Like what, what would I do? You know, how, how do you, when you notice that like contraction, how do you find the open heart again and, and find mm -hmm. this, find the space to, to breathe and relax? Can you walk me through that practice? Absolutely. That's such an important question. It is a practice. Um, my teacher, uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, he's a, a Zen Buddhist, a, a Zen master, um, teaches about the importance of stopping. And so it's important that we acknowledge that when we're in a state of contraction and, and a, a traumatic response, we, we can't really practice anything that's not a habit because right. our prefrontal cortex is turned off hmm. and it's the amygdala and it's the survival brain that's driving the bus. So we really want to look for moments of serenity where we can practice stopping. We can practice the pause. And what that looks like is stop. You ask yourself, what am I doing? What am I doing right now? I'm having a podcast. <laughs> I'm having a conversation. I'm looking at the camera and you know, I'm looking at the screen. So for me, if I were starting to feel that way, I might look away and find something green and distant that I can connect with. Mm. And then automatically we breathe deeper. You decide <laughs> that's the perfect response. That's what our bodies do. They just naturally <sighs> let go because they realize they're safe. Yeah. And that's, that's the practice. And I mean, in a moment of stress, I would talk to my inner child. I would say, 
Nobody's judging you. Nobody mm -hmm. expects anything of you. You don't have to be doing anything right now. You're safe. I got you. <laughs> I have a practice of self-parenting where my inner child uh, doesn't have to do the adulting. <laughs> she gets to just be a child. <laughs> so I let her know. You know, if she's like, well, I'm scared. I don't want to go to that meeting. It's just terrifying. And I'd be like, okay, you don't have to come. You stay here and play. I'll be back in an hour. <laughs> Amazing. You know, there's a, that's an intervention that we can use uh, in a moment where we really are in a crisis. Yeah. Uh, is to, it's, it's a form of affirmation where we're, we're talking to ourselves in a way that's loving and gentle and kind and humorous and respectful. And at the beginning of our conversation, we touched on how we don't all have great examples to, to draw upon of, of how to be our whole selves and to move through the world nonviolently um, and in a way that's you know respectful. And so there's a, a process that we do as part of ensoulment where we deprogram those, those that conditioning where we're we're driving ourselves like slave drivers. We're yeah. um, judging ourselves like malevolent, harsh critics. And, and we really go through, we, we have to take steps. We have to actively work to, to deprogram those things. Uh, and a lot of times when we're feeling contracted and we're in that, that space of, well, I don't want to share, uh, that's the time to, to really parent ourselves the way that, that a good enough parent would do. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. And, and to acknowledge that there are times within groups is say you're working a group of four or five and, you know, there is that tension that enters the room. And oftentimes there's, there's two responses for the group. There's one is, you know, the people who shrink into the corner and kind of fade in the background, and don't say what they need to say. And then there's, you know, there's always the alpha who's like, you know, oh, there's a, there's, there's tension. So I'm going to get more loud and more dominant. And, you know, that doesn't always have to be the males in the room. It just happens to be a, a kind of male trait. And uh, mm -hmm. so I think in this process of, of learning how to do uh, leadership through synarchy, it's important for us to take those moments within ourselves to pause and I think eventually to work in a practice within groups where we're able to, you know, acknowledge our need to go to the bathroom collectively or acknowledge that we're moving past lunch and we're hungry and acknowledge that that has an effect on how people act and treat each other and respond and, and get reactive or whatever. And, and I think that's one of the challenges with our 24-7 global economy is that, you know, time you know, it's like, well, you know, we're on the East Coast and we need you to meet it at, at seven in the morning. And so if you're not a seven in the morning person, suddenly you got to like get on, you know, at that time of day. And that is affecting the dynamic of our groups and our decision making. And so not that, that we can't do that, but I think it requires even more presence. And perhaps in some of these more uh, intentional group settings, if we could design in some sort of like... uh routines and practices or best practices that just have a regular, like you said, like a, a habit where you create a positive habit of a check-in with the group of like a, a touch point of like, you know, hey, real quick, like, how you know, just stop the conversation. How's everybody feeling in their body right now? Like, I mean, I think it varies from group to group. Obviously, you're not going to do that in a corporate boardroom, or maybe you are. <laughs> like, I mean, I almost feel like, you know, these are the kinds of things that, uh, that would be of benefit. And uh, I love that you mentioned the work of Thich Nhat Hanh, that comes up a lot in my conversations. And uh, what a wonderful community, what a wonderful teacher. 
and, uh, you know, to walk with presence through the world and even to the smallest things that you do, you know, just, just walking down the street to walk with presence, just having mm-hmm. a conversation to have a conversation with presence. And that's presence for you, Veronica, in this conversation. That's presence for me, Stephen, who's in my body speaking right now. And that's presence for all of you who are listening and also for the trees that are outside and also for this chair that is supporting me. And it's funny, it's like you don't have to think about it too hard, but when you practice this, it just becomes second nature. You kind of get a little bit more comfortable with like, who am I being in this moment? And how do I be, how do I be? <laughs> like, I don't have, like you said, like, I don't have to, I just get to be here. And I, then, then the enjoyment can kick in. It's like, I'm having this beautiful conversation with you and we've been looking forward to speaking for a long time. And I guess that's maybe where I will shift the conversation for a minute. Like, um, you know, before we close, um, where like, you know, we've, we've interacted, uh, indirectly, I think, and, you know, we've heard a lot about each other. So like, I just, just like three minutes to, to share and ask questions and be curious. Do you have any, uh, do you have any questions for me? Oh, <laughs> that's fun. Um, do you see a connection between time and colonialism and white supremacy? Because there's like this, this thread that I feel wanting to come forward. And I'm curious if you want to explore it. With me. Wow. Okay. So Stephen Bao started the mission that I would have done, which was around uh, a, a circular calendar. And mm-hmm. I had, you know, I had said for three space camps, if I was going to start a mission, it would be like to, to do this idea. Well, then he made it like, <laughs> and so I think the idea of a society, you know, conforming us to this idea of productivity, you know, a train schedule, a time zone, uh, you know, meeting lasting a certain amount of time and the calendar month being when the rents do. Like you mentioned, these systems of hegemony, it's literally like, so I got to pay my landlord or my bank by the first. Therefore, I cannot afford to take a moment to myself to honor myself yeah. if I'm tired. You know, I have to work two jobs or three jobs instead of just one. I I have to send my kids to daycare because, you know, that time is money. I feel like for me, that's the system of control at its, you know, first and foremost. I mean, where, where is the, the Greenwich meantime? It's in London, which was the center of empire. So, and, you know, for all those that are, you know, anti-woke out there, whatever. Okay. The, the British were bastards. They were not nice people. Just ask any historian. And I think that's, you know, why, like you mentioned, that's why we all sailed the ocean blue and got across to another place. And, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. like you said, fled the wars in Europe and all those things because it was oppressive. And then what happens that we create the same thing here inadvertently and, you know, the ideals are there in terms of like being, you know, uh, free, you know, humanity, humanity being these humanitarian values, uh, but they're imperfect and they're in process. And, and so I think as we go back to understanding that it doesn't matter how hard we work, if we're raising a generation that that is doesn't have parents and, you know, that that we're 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 giving them a world that isn't going to be breathable you know the water's not going to be drinkable um i think the you know i mean burnout constant productivity you know around the clock it's ignoring our 
not just our biological needs, but also our holistic thriving. And so not to say, I, I have had in-depth conversations with Scott Thrift on my other podcast, The Language of Creativity. And what I like about the work of Scott Thrift is he designed, he started, uh, he was in uh, filmmaking and he like filmed the Ted, he filmed the Ted stage and he did documentaries and things like this. He interviewed Brian Eno and through his interview with Brian Eno, he developed this idea of like, what if we could develop a longer now? Hmm. And he's like, we need a technology for that. So he literally designed a clock that's an annual clock and it starts at the noon position and it takes one whole year to go around. Mm-hmm. And you can't see it moving, but you mm-hmm. can notice, like, if you look at it, like two weeks later, you notice that the colors change because the entire clock is the color wheel with the seasons being gradients. So there's no lines on this clock. Um, there's no markers. It just is the color wheel. And so uh, spring is green and uh, summer is yellow and red is fall. And then it goes into winter and it's magical. Like this whole idea, he's sharing with me these experiences people are having with this clock of just sort of regaining this sense of like, not just perspective, but that slower, like you said, geological view of time it suddenly gives us a different viewpoint, which to frame our own importance and how big a deal the thing, the deadline from today is really in the grand scheme of things. You know, often you look at the stars and you're just like, man, like <laughs> my problems are really insignificant, right? So I'm very passionate about this idea. It kind of goes along with, with for me, the talk that was given about rewilding in one of the space camps of this idea of listening to nature and like, what do the plants need? You know, what, what are they asking me to do? And, and understanding, like, if you're a farmer, there's a whole view of nature, like around the seasons and the moons and the cycles. And you can, you can predict when these crop cycles are happening and they're, they're kind of in this gradient, the weather changes, but you, there's this slower rhythm that, you know, it's suddenly, you know, okay, it's almost time. It's time, you know, and then you just in that moment and then, okay, that time is changing and we're moving on to the thing. So it's a lot more like keeping time with the moon because the moon is, it's not just like, okay, it's, you know, it's half. Okay. It's quarter. Okay. It's full. Okay. It's like, no, it's this slow movement throughout the month, the month, and I think when you reacclimate yourself to that sense of, um, like, a more natural sense of time, we realize how many of these rhythms and cycles are built into our world, are built into our, um, you know, natural sense of humanity and nature and, you know, the animals and how, how, how those things, and how artificial the the calendar is, how artificial our deadlines are, how artificial, how oftentimes these things are manufactured to create scarcity and to motivate people like carrots and sticks. And that to me is the colonialism. And if you want to mention white supremacy, I think it's the idea that, uh, you know, that I, I resonate with is that it hurts everybody. Like it hurts the white people too. We just don't understand that because, you know, it's 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 like you ask anybody like that's oppressed and they're like, I'm feeling oppressed. And, uh, I, you know, I, I think, too, that we got to acknowledge what we're getting out of it. And I think, you know, a big part of you know talking about productivity culture is 
there is a part of us that is getting validation out of the idea that I am productive and that I am hashtag winning. And so, you know, to sort of judo flip that, you have to acknowledge that, yes, um, there are those things and I can do them, but also I am beyond those things. I am, I get to exist just because I am and I get to be, and I also get to value the people who are, who are in my world that aren't hashtag winning. You know, it's like, we all know that we all know how to have compassion for one another, but it's easy to forget when we're, you know, how easy is it to be driving down the road and just like cut someone off because, you know, we're, we're in a hurry and we realize that, you know, we would have been fine either way. Like, you know, but there's this idea, oh, I'm late, I'm late. And what does that do to our awareness? How does that subtract from us the, just the experiential joy of life? I mean, nine out of 10 times, it, it really doesn't matter how fast we get there or if we're three minutes late to something. I mean, yeah, there's the perception of like social graces and, you know, you're keeping me waiting, whatever. If you know that's not your intent, you know, all it's doing is robbing us of our now. And so Mm -hmm. I think, you know, that's a perfect example of something that's gotten wildly out of balance, maybe something that has its use. And, you know, we were able to coordinate this meeting because we agreed that noon Pacific was the time and we both showed up and that's very helpful. Um, We didn't, you weren't kept waiting for two hours because, you know, I forgot. And, you know, like, so there is, and, you know, like, that's where I resonate with the work of Buckminster Fuller is you don't. You don't get rid of the existing systems by like fighting them. You make a new system that renders the old one obsolete. And so for me, it's very much about, you know, this idea of not fighting, you know, like the oppression, not fight. Yes, there is a place for that. But also like, you know, I'm not going to go like, I'm throwing my watch out the window. I don't wear a watch, but you know, I'm throwing time out the window. I'm just not, I mean, you have to, I think we have to do certain things in our modern life to make it work, but we can still look for practices and ways to re-embody and to reconnect to the cycles of nature and to not always, you know, to, to sort of like, one step removed, disengaged from that artificiality of deadlines and, and time and, and the calendar and the clock in any way that we can. So that maybe someday Stephen's calendar maybe will be a, a thing that people follow or Scott Thrift's clock will be a thing that people also keep in 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 their homes and, and have this other sense of time. I think, you know, that's that's a long answer to your short question, but that was quite the question. <laughs> It was loaded. Yeah. <laughs> <Good question. laughs> yeah. It, you got me thinking about it from the the comments that you made about external validation and giving ourselves permission to, to show up as creatives and, and, you know, getting rid of this, this false self. And, you know, I, I see in my own life that that comes from a relationship to white supremacy, which has indoctrinated me into perfectionism, where I just need to be perfect all the time in order to be worthy of my privilege and to show up as part of the strata that society has placed me within. So I think that you're right, liberating ourselves, rewilding ourselves out of this um, productivity culture is, is the work of our times. And, you know, that idea of checking in with our bodies and seeing where we're at, that's something that we've done really well in DSS that we, mm-hmm. we always start our meetings with a uh, question. So we start with curiosity and the whole group gets to feed in and then we dance, we have a wiggle 
and then we breathe. And that three-part ritual has gone a long way to create a sense of culture within our group of now nearly 300 uh, revolutionaries. And uh, I would like to imagine what kind of ripple that will have in the world as well. Yes, beautiful. I'll ask you a question. Um, what is your hope for the future in the next three or four years? Hmm. How do you envision us taking the steps we need to to reach a tipping point of a regenerative lens? I believe that people will experience their inner world with more allowance and acceptance. I, I vision a world where we're open to grieving. We, we allow our suffering to show and we don't need to be perfect all the time. And we can be honest with one another that we're having mental health issues and that our spiritual lives are are weak and we we want to be better in those ways and including emotional literacy and we can start to have a global conversation about how the biggest disability of our time is depression mm. and we can we can destigmatize the the inner world our our experience mm. of our emotions and we can we can have a global conversation about that and in that way we will liberate the creative energy and, and potential that we have as a species to really evolve beyond these um, consumerist systems, which are uh, degenerative and yeah. oppressive. And we can start to open our hearts to one another and, and to see the suffering of Africa, for example, and to really awaken to the, the massive conflict that's happening around the world and for the majority of people mm -hmm. and start to activate our empathy and our compassion and, and use that as the force, which will motivate us towards our goals for bringing our planetary systems back within boundaries uh, by 2030. So I hope that, you know, in three or four years, we'll be on the way to accessing the energy that is, is here for us. Um, the compost heap will be ripening and we can start to really plant those seeds and cultivate that freedom and abundance that we all deserve. I love that idea. Like art activates empathy. Yes. And I feel like that's the idea of being the revolutionary artists of this re evolutionary artists of this time. And uh, mm -hmm. yeah, so, so wonderful to share with you, Veronica, Veronica Anderson, uh, I believe your website is, uh, is it veronica.earth? That's it. Yep. You can also find me on Instagram at vero.earth or visionaryarch. Amazing. And we'll place some links in the show note to some of the things that you mentioned. Hopefully, if you have pictures of your, um, your building that you designed in Costa Rica, it'd be wonderful to link to that. Uh, my podcast is the Spaceship Earth Mission Log, which you're watching. Uh, it's here on YouTube. It's also on Substack. It's on I, Apple Podcasts. And my other podcast is The Language of Creativity, and you can easily find that at thelanguageofcreativity.com. I'm Stephen Levitt. It's been an honor to share with you, and please continue to join us, subscribe, review the podcast if you like. And most importantly, I would say, 
check in with your body. How you doing? <laughs> Go outside and have a wonderful day. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Stephen. Thanks, listeners.